Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Speed City with John Massengill, Les Kaiser, and Jonathan Green. It's the fastest hour on the radio. Speed City. Your heads, welcome to Speed City, your Sunday night with Speed City. This is John Massengale sitting in the studio, and we are very excited. We have a wonderful show for you tonight. We do have a sad note to the show tonight with the passing of Marie Walker, a legendary broadcaster in Formula One, Marie Walker. And we are very happy to have our guest to help us celebrate the life of Murray Walker, and we have American, the beloved American Formula One broadcaster, Bob Varsha. Mr. Varsha, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks, John. Great to be back with you guys again. Well, thank you very much. And we also have the iconic race driver, Brian Redman. Brian, Mr. Redman, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Jonathan. Excellent shape for an old man. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, by the way. Yes. All right. Yeah, thanks Happy very birthday. much. Yes. Yes, if anybody had told me uh, that I would live 30 years longer than my father, I would never have believed it. How about it? Yeah. Uh, and you chalked that up secret. to clean living, I'm assuming. Uh, well, yes, in some ways, yes. Of course, the racing life is full of temptation, as you all know. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> so uh, I managed to avoid most of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, I'm joined by my normal co-host Jonathan Green and Les Kaiser, and but but we are we are going to talk a little F1 testing at some point during the show. But we are really dedicating this show to Murray Walker, and I think I want to start with you, Mr. Varsha, and and talk about what Murray Walker meant to you, and 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 maybe how you met him. Well, um, I first met Murray in the uh, Australian Grand Prix on the old Adelaide Street Circuit. I believe it was 1989, which was the first year that I went there for ESPN. I had begun working with David Hobbs. Um, this was toward the end of the season, of course. Somehow, um, Murray and David and I managed to avoid each other until the uh, that, that very last race of the year. Um, and we were just wandering the paddock. And of course, you know, Murray spotted David and zoomed right in on him. And, uh, and I met him and he said some nice things about our new partnership and then up pulls this limousine uh, and in the back window, giving us the, you know, the queen's own wave was uh, 76 world champ, James Hunt, who was so synonymous with Murray for so many years uh, on the BBC. So that was where we first met. Uh, I, I must say it, it's a shame that our paths didn't cross very much. Um, we were in attendance at pretty much every race back in those days. The BBC didn't attend every one. So the opportunity to chat with Murray wasn't always there, but, but I was able to, to meet him and talk with him on a few occasions and I treasure all of them. Mm -hmm. As to what he means, well, you know, I, this is going to come out like blasphemy. So I have to be very careful about how I say this. Murray in my view, starting way back when he did in the late 1940s, became, I think, the model for British commentators that followed him. High pitch, lots of excitement, high energy, constant words. I mean, talk, 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 talk. Um, and to this day, I think a lot of announcers, and I'm looking at you, Jonathan, um, <laughs> Tend to tend to uh, you know to to admire yeah. and mimic that style. Uh, it's not Correct. my style, but I've always you know thought, Lord, how does he do that? But that was that was authentic Murray, and I think his influence is felt to this day and will be well into the future. 
Well, uh, I, I want to ask you, Brian, really the same two questions. You know, what, what, how did you meet him and first time? And then what does he mean to you? Well, I, of course, heard him uh, in the early days, in the uh, late 50s and 60s, rather than meeting him. I started really um, professional racing in the way 1969. And so I met him, but only a few times, not, not so many times until um, Goodwood. At the festival, sorry, the revival, the race week on Thursday afternoon, they have cricket on the cricket pitch in front of Goodwood House. And he was an umpire. And probably <laughs> seven years ago, I was a reluctant outfielder. You know, I was on the outfield hoping the ball wouldn't come my way, but unfortunately it did. <laughs> and I picked it up and I raised my hand, you know, to throw it back to the wicket. It was quite some distance. And my shoulder was hurting a bit, so I thought I'll do it underhand. So I ran as fast as I could, and I gave a mighty swing with my hand and let go. And then I looked to see where it had gone, and I couldn't see it. And so I looked in the air, and fortunately, it was just in time to dodge to one side as it landed just where I was standing. <laughs> so I said to Lord March, as he was then, I said, uh, thank you very much, Charles. Uh, I said, I have now retired from playing cricket. And he said, would you care to be an umpire? And I said, of course. And so for several years, probably four years, I was an umpire with Murray. And that's really where I got to know him the best. <laughs> uh, a wonderful, wonderful character and a wonderful person. You know? Well, and I want to go to you, Jonathan Green, next, because Bob Varsha was talking about, about, his, about Murray's style and, yeah. and the commentators that followed him, and you freely admit that that you you know you modeled your your style after Absolutely. him. Yeah, as a commentator, you try not uh, well. You don't want to impersonate anybody because you'll be found out within seconds. So you got to try to try to get your own style, and, and and in order to be credible, you've got to have that because if you just do an impersonation, you're you're, you're making fun of that person, and you have no credibility. You you know we really don't. But Bob, I've never heard anybody put it that way. But Bob is absolutely right. He, he, if you wanted to make it in motorsport in Britain, you had to have a touch of that. And and I picked up on the passion that Murray had for the sport. And also, um, I've never my my father and Brian will will admit to this. My father was was very much mechanical engineering and into the engines and so on. I've never been into the engines and I've never been um, into the cars as themselves. I've always been into racing drivers and what they do. And as a sportsman, I've always idolized that. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think Murray was like that too. And that's why he was so beloved. So if, if anything, my pursuit of trying to be, you know, a Murray Walker type person was to try to do two things. I always felt that uh, motor racing on TV was actually pretty dull with the sound down. And so that high pitch that Murray brought to it brought a sense of urgency and a sense of drama to Formula mm -hmm. One that just captivated me as a child for exactly what Bob's reason, which was a high, you couldn't, you know, you wanted to go and make a cup of tea and then Murray would just explode and you'd be like, what's happened? What happened? And Mansell had blown a tire or something. And so there was that sense that, that, that he kept you coming back. And I agree with Bob. It's not everybody's cup of tea. And a lot of people mm -hmm. are maligned for that, that style of commentary. Um, if you listen to horse racing in England, it's very similar. It goes on a very monotone pattern for a while and then suddenly explodes in the final furlongs. Um, and it's just a style that, that, that has definitely been cultivated by Britain. And of course, the early days of television, uh, most people listen to, 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 to British announcers per se. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, um, no question um, that I, I mean, there's, if, if there's two people in my life that have influenced me in why I, I love motorsport, it's Brian, because I met him through my family uh, at a very young age and started going to places like Brands Hatch when I was three uh, and watching and listening to Murray Walker. And, and, and I never thought I would. I, I mean, that was a, a pipe dream to do commentary. So I feel very uh, blessed to have, have been part of Formula One, even for just a, a short period. Well, I want to play a clip of Murray because I think, Jonathan, you found this clip on YouTube and, and it really, it's a fantastic clip. It typifies everything that everyone's just been talking about. Let's play that. But we've got our monitors back again. We're riding with Jacques Villeneuve, sector one into turn four, the right-hander. And Jacques Villeneuve is inside Frenson's time. Now this is the fast drag down to turn five, 185 miles an hour. 
back off into second gear. 55 miles an hour on the apex. Accelerate round the left-hander. It keeps on going. 145 miles an hour, 165 miles an hour. And he moves up into provisional pole position. Well, that's more like it. That's the kind of lap times we were expecting to see. That's given them all a wake-up call. There's so much time under braking here for the chicane. Oh, look at that. Three tenths of a second inside. This is terrific. Michael Schumacher is going to move up into provisional pole position if he just keeps up this speed as he comes into the last corner now. In tight on the apex. Get it steady. Boot it hard. Over the grid and over the line goes Michael Schumacher and moves up into second place with a time exactly the same as Jacques Villeneuve's to the nearest one thousandth of a second. They've both done. All right. I, I know that I could see all of you smiling. Uh, every <laughs> Everybody, every one of you smiling. And, I, I you know, Bob, I, I was really watching your face, too, because I could see when they showed the commentary booth that you just lit up. And I mean, I want to hear your thoughts. What was running through your mind? Well, the first thing I noticed was the body English. You know, it, it, while Murray is talking, he's leaning left and right and he's forward and back and and, you know, mimicking the track turns with his hand. I mean, that's somebody who is totally immersed in what he's doing. And I also thought <laughs> there's poor Martin Brundle, um, you know, looking for his wedge to uh, to get something in there because Murray and this may be inside baseball as far as you know commentary is concerned in in Murray's role which I would assume would be my role I'm, I'm not supposed to be telling the guy how to drive the car and you know and I'm not supposed to say you know how fast he's going or what the g-forces are in the corners or all that kind of stuff that's what Martin's there for but you know this is Murray this is what he does and I think he did so many races solo without a partner in the booth um, over the years, and not just racing, but the other sports he covered. Um, so, you know, it was just second nature to him to paint the whole picture for the viewer or the listener. Yeah, and, and I, I just think that he did that so fantastically. I, I, I've just been amazed at uh, everyone responding on Twitter, like starting with Martin Brundle talking about how he's a national treasure. And I think it's just everybody, especially in the U.K., but but he was on here in the United States as well, and unless I you know we, I haven't talked to you about this really even off air, but I know that you watch enough Formula One to remember him in the United States as well. You're right. I mean, it, it was one of those guys that I honestly could not recall his name, but when I heard his voice, I immediately knew that's the same guy. Yeah. And uh, and catching up with it, I've watched a lot of videos today. Uh, waking up to that news. And I got to say, there, there's one thing I, I hope I can glean from him as well. I mean, I, I've gleaned a lot from, our, you know, affectionately call him Uncle Bob here. But uh, <laughs> from Murray, he made his mistakes funny and polished <laughs> and informative. He would correct them and made them an education. Right. He was part of learning it himself. And I appreciate that, yeah. uh, that, it, that he wasn't a know-it-all. <laughs> is is that what you heard, Brian and Bob? Go ahead, Brian. Well, I don't think, as I say, I didn't know it so well, really, until I started uh, playing cricket at Buddle. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd listened to him many times, but I hadn't met him very many times. Um, and so we actually became uh, good friends at Goodwood and had uh, many, many moments, one of which was my fault entirely. But they told us that uh, we stopped for tea, afternoon tea, at 4 p.m. And they said, if anybody is out, you know, for any reason, between 5 to 4 and 4 o'clock, don't count them out. Well, about <laughs> three minutes to four, Alan uh -oh. Decadene came in, you know, who's uh, well known to all the motoring people and so on and so forth. So the first ball comes, but they were running late. They didn't stop at four. So at three minutes past four, the ball comes down, and he's LBW, leg before wicket. So I signaled him out. <laughs> oh. this, this caused a huge row. And uh, Murray had a few words to say as well. But anyway, <laughs> it worked out. And Alan Decadene said, well, you should, that's a great pity, old chap. You know, I'm pretty good cricketer. <laughs> 
You mentioned his uh, his Murrayisms, you know, the and his self-deprecating way. Both are true. And I used to tell people Murray had the best job in the world because he could be wrong all day long and people loved him for it. Like, oh, there's old Murray, got it backwards again. Well, they even, as I recall, they bound his Murrayisms into a book at book. one point. You know, it, yes. was a, it was a big seller. Um, yeah. That was pre-Twitter. Yeah. 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 Imagine and that on was, today, uh, Twitter, people would just shred you, which is ridiculous, oh, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was famous for those things. And he was, as I said, self-deprecating. Years ago in American television, they would always tell you, you, you know, you are the expert. You're the guy talking on TV. Don't ever admit that you're wrong <laughs> unless you have no way out of it, which I always thought was really a silly thing, you know, because you, you want the viewer to get the total accurate experience. So you want to be, you know, called out on it Human. when you get something wrong. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be cruel. Just say, whoops, that's not quite right. I've certainly had more than my share of those things. But uh, again, Murray was you know, like, holy moly, I got that wrong. And, uh, and he did it in such a graceful, funny way over Which and over. Which he did Murray often, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Give you yeah. one example. I should imagine that the conditions in the cockpit are totally unimaginable. <laughs> that, that's a good Murrayism. But you know, oh, yeah. you know what? I got a question for Brian here. Brian, your Formula One era was the the early seventies with several different teams. Was Murray part of that? Um, and you know, another question, really, if it, what if that's not the case, uh, as a racing driver, and Bob's kind of alluded to this, there is a humble s, which is what he had in spades, um, because. A know-it-all is not popular, especially if you aren't a racing driver like myself and Bob. Um, so you do hope that you do have a racing... I always ha hope to have a racing driver next to me because we haven't been there. So how can we uh, have any opinion about what it's like to go down the Molzahn straight as you have at 210 miles an hour or whatever it might be? So commentators play a role that is both important but can be probably quite annoying to somebody like yourself who is actually doing the driving and having to listen to it back later. <laughs> yes. What's <laughs> <laughs> yes. happening to Mulling over incidents in his mind. <laughs> Why is my shirt flashing up and down like that? Can well, you see? I don't know. You want, you put it on. <laughs> <laughs> the ratings will but go, go on, sky Brian, high. Go on, Brian. What, there what, you what? go. All right. Yeah. Fair, no, fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, it's a show first. Us, show oh, us well. some injuries. That's yes, very nice, actually. Show yeah. us some injuries. <laughs> Next week, appearing on the show, Beyonce. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Hey, that's it. We're going to have Bob Marsh as the DJ so, announcer for the, uh, the reveals. Yeah, I learned something not to put on a multicolored shirt. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. No, it's good. You're down in Florida. That's fine. It's warm. There you so, go. So, Problem solved. So can we get back to the question? What was the question, Jonathan? Well, what was the question? Well, it was about Brian Zero in Formula One. I just wanted to hear a little bit about whether, I don't know, was Murray commentating back then in Formula One? Because, well, as you said, he was. You know, my first uh, foray into Formula One was 1968, and my first race was South Africa, Guy uh, Army, where John Cooper, I was driving a Cooper, pumped uh, oil out of the Maserati engine in every direction. And he said to me, Brian, please try and do five laps. We need the starting money. So I did five, <laughs> five laps, covered the circuit in oil, and retired. And then the next race, I, everybody really broke down. I finished third behind Graham Hill and uh, Denny Hume at the Harama, the Spanish Grand Prix in 1968. And then the next race was the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa-Francorchamps the fastest, most dangerous track in the world at that time, where just a month before, Jackie X and I had won the 1,000-kilometer race in the GT40, the Golden Wire Automotive Engineering GT40. And on about the seventh lap, I whistled into a corner called Likoum. It's still there today. But today, at Likoum, everybody goes right onto what is effectively a new circuit. In those days, we went left and disappeared into the Belgian countryside. So I come whistling into Lake Coombe, clamped the ankles on, and nothing much happened. And so 
Um, I've always thought, you know, I'd rather go backwards and forwards. So I tried to spin it as the steering was locked. And the next minute, I had a very huge accident. I disappeared over the barrier. This arm got caught between the barrier and the car and I had a compound fracture. Three wheels came off, one of which hit a corner work. I landed right in a corner work post. And so that was only my third Grand Prix. So I was then out of Grand Prix racing until uh, 1972. So I was four years later. And so, you know, I didn't really, uh, you know, I wasn't in Formula One so much that I'd met uh, Murray frequently. I've no doubt that Templeine was, I saw him, but not all the time by any means. So. Jonathan, I want to ask you about a story because you told me you gave me goosebumps when we were just driving in the car, talking on the phone, and, and told me about Murray Walker commentating on the Ayrton Senna the day that Ayrton Senna died. Yeah, I, uh, for the best part of six years, I worked in Asia, in Hong Kong at Star TV. And we had a show called Grand Prix Sunday and we did MotoGP, Formula One. Um, but we were very remote. We didn't, you know, we, we, we didn't go to a lot of races because of where we were. And, and also there was no experts out there. Um, There's no racing drivers to, to talk of. We had one one event, um, a major event, which was the Macau Grand Prix, which Murray would commentate for, for some 30 years, actually. Um, and... Um, yeah, when May 1994 came round, uh, obviously I was watching and on air at the time. Uh, our commentary team was the BBCs, and we would throw—I think it was the BBC still—but he, but Murray was doing the commentary. Uh, and you see a lot of race, you, you know, you, as a, a presenter, and Bob will, will tell you this: you see a lot of crashes, and 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 it's again, it's a commentary thing, which is. Don't jump in and start to give your opinion on the crash. You aren't there. You don't know what's happening. And you, but you are trying to inform the audience of everything you know. And the, uh, the initial accident when he went off at Tamburello um, was not innocuous. It was a fast accident, but he had gone a long way into the gravel. And it looked as though, um, you know, the car was okay. But then a helicopter shot um, came down. And Murray began talking and his voice changed quite dramatically uh, where he, he could tell. And he, he often had this, what he called a lump in his throat. And I could hear this sort of almost past tense Murray talking live over a helicopter shot saying, we are, you know, we're not, we're not really aware of what the situation is. We will bring it to you when we can. But I just, I immediately turned to my studio guest and I said, he's hurt. He's hurt bad. Mm-hmm. And I knew, and it was just Murray's tone by just literally worshipping him and listening to him for so many years that I knew something more was wrong than, I mean, you know, we'd had an accident the day before with, with Barrichello and, you know, and you see, I mean, look at Grosjean's accident. Same thing. I had that same sinking feeling uh, with Grosjean. And, you know, you do not comment on something like that. You try to path. Am I right, Bob? You, you, you just, you, you can't. You're not there, and no, you've got completely. to be responsible. Completely. And, and, and more often than not, there are loved ones and close friends and stuff on the other end of the television yeah. show who are also looking at information, and you cannot uh-huh. speculate about those things. It, it, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before about having a, a, an ex-racing driver, a blue-ribbon athlete of some sort there to judge the quality of what we're looking at. I'm just there to get us in and out of commercials and tell you, you know, what's at stake and who the stars are and all that sort of thing. But I'm not going to say anybody's doing good, better, indifferent. But several times in my career, and on that weekend especially, I just, you know, looked over at my colleague, who in this case was Derek Daly, and he knew immediately. Racers see races differently than, you know, the relatively untutored like ourselves. Uh, And Derek knew immediately. He just shook his head. I mean, we didn't say anything, but we waited we were at the basement of Bristol, Connecticut at ESPN. We had not traveled to the race, which in a way was kind of a good thing because we had the, the news gathering capabilities of ESPN. And I think we found out before they announced anything in the press room at, uh, at Imola. Um, but, you know, it was pretty clear to racers who know, and Brian, you've written about this in your book about dangerous tracks and, and so on. Uh, racers know. They know. Bob, do you have a moment like Jonathan about Murray's commentating? Do you use something that stands out in your mind? Well, if I'm honest, it's the Murrayisms that stand out in my mind. I mean, it was <laughs> after working for years with Dorsey Schrader, who had that same yeah. gift 
for <laughs> totally mangling you know, a, a sentence and coming around back again. Um, no, and, and I have to be honest and say that, I, you know, I didn't get to see so much of Murray's work because I was in the next booth over or, or what have you. I will say this, I saw amidst all of the, the tributes to Murray, one uh, that included a clip of an interview in which Murray said that the one sport he never got to cover that he would have liked to was snooker. You know, the, the, the <laughs> game that's like, it's like pool without pockets. You know, you bounce oh. balls off walls and I have no idea how the thing is scored. But Murray wanted to commentate on snooker, which is like the 18th green at the Masters. You Correct. know, talk about it like this the whole time. Can you imagine <laughs> Murray Walker whispering? <laughs> <laughs> it would have been yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, there's so much about Murray we didn't. We didn't really well, I've that. never heard Jonathan Green whisper, so I don't know. If it actually <laughs> you, you, hey, to get a word in with my father, you, 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 you can't whisper. <laughs> ah, Brian, Brian's robed again. That's good. It is his family show, and my mother's watching Brian, so we can't. <laughs> He's used to being on the beach in Florida. We'll find you a BRD. I, I think it was because I was on that small uh, thing. I could sort of, my shirt was flashing like this every time I moved, but it's not now. So, yeah, not enough pictures. Okay, yeah, okay. Right. Yes, yes. Well, well, how did how did you two guys meet? I want to ask Bob and Brian how did how did you two guys meet? Um, by sharing a broadcast booth. How else would you expect? Uh, St. Petersburg Grand Prix back in the early to mid '80s. There were actually three of us: David Hobbs, Brian, and myself. May have been the first time I worked with uh, with both of them. Um, yeah, so that was the beginning. All right, gentlemen, we need to take a break and get some a couple of commercials in. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about the legendary Murray Walker. And we'll probably try to sneak in a little F1 testing at some point during the show. You're listening to Speed City live from Austin, Texas, back after a short break. Winding Road Racing is your first and best choice for all the essentials for a great weekend at the track. We're racers, and we love helping racers. With a full selection of racing gear in stock, get geared up with all the safety equipment needed to meet all the latest Snell FIA and SFI regulations. Outfit your car with a comprehensive lineup of racing necessities, and when you need to find a few more tents, turn to data acquisition systems from AIM Sports, V-Box, and others. Austin-based with shops in California, Georgia, and Kentucky, the source for all your racing needs. Winding Road Racing, windingroadracing.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 
When you're looking for traditional Tex-Mex, look no further than an Austin favorite, one in a million. Serving original family recipes since 1980 and located just minutes from downtown at 2300 East Cesar Chavez, one in a million has your Tex-Mex fix every day of the week from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. Breakfast is served all day. Homemade migas, enchiladas, and menudo. And try the Don Juan taco. Some say it's big enough to feed a family of four. One in a million. Online at oneinamillion.com. Talk 13.7. Welcome back to the fastest hour in radio, Speed City. Bit of goosebumps there for me, for sure. I'm sure everybody a little bit. But, well, welcome back to the show. And we are celebrating the life of Murray Walker. And we are joined by Bob Varsha and Brian Redman. And thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. And I, I think I want to go to you, Brian, next. Um, I want to ask you first about your book. And, and then maybe um, uh, some of the, your worst moments or accidents in your illustrious career. <clears throat> Right. What do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, first of all, let's ask you about your book. Tell us about your book. The book it was a huge uh, drama, really. Uh, Jim Mullen, a friend of mine and a racer, successful racer and a big businessman, huge businessman, um, he decided about, somewhere about 2014 that it would be a good idea to do a book. I wasn't too keen because I, you know, I had an idea of the Anyway, it went on, and it finally came out in March of uh, 2016, uh, around the Goodwood time. And it's actually done pretty well for a motor racing book, I think. It's now, um, we printed 7,500, and there's about 100 copies left at the U.S. distributor. So it's been okay, but it's a big pain. You know, you're shipping books, hmm. you're going somewhere, ship, you know, 50 books. And you sell ten, and you have to ship forty back. <laughs> so, so, but anyway, it's been very good, and I, I certainly will give Mullen a big, you know, thank you uh, for doing it. it was good. Well, I Brian, jump in. Sorry to jump in un, un, unannounced, but guys, uh, we need to get these two men to come to Austin for USGP. Can you imagine an evening with these two stories going? Good. They both <laughs> I'd like it. Great books. They. I want to hear more of this and, and what an evening that could be. It would be fun. I'm in. Uh, you know, in terms of, actually, I was, uh, in many ways, I've been extraordinarily lucky in, you know, in getting out of pretty bad accidents and still uh, being pretty well, you know, okay at an advanced age. But so many of my patients, they had one big accident and they were done. That was it. It was unbelievable, you know, in the 60s. And even the early 70s, when things were starting to get better. But in 71, uh, I'd, I'd done taking a one-off drive for Portugal on the Targa Florio. The Targa Florio was 44 miles to one lap. And they say 800 corners per lap. I've never actually counted them. Well, Joseph and I had won it in 1970 in the factory Porsche 9083. And uh, I'd retired foolishly from racing at the end of 1970, and I'd come back four months later, and I didn't have a drive, but John Wire called and said, would I like to do the Targa Florio? But Derek Bell, who'd taken my place in the Gulf Porsche team, had never done it. And so to me, it looked like you know, a great opportunity to get back. And so anyway, Sifford, Joe Sifford, my co-driver, crashed the car the day before the race, pretty hard, actually. Worked on it all night. The next day, John Wyatt said to me, I read them and we'd like you to start. Well, normally, <laughs> Sifford started. And I said, you know, what for? He said, I don't want Rodriguez and Sifford knocking each other off. You know, they were always <laughs> hanging like this. And so I started. And right from the start, the handling of the car wasn't normal. And so 22 miles round the 44-mile circuit, the steering broke in a pretty simple corner. And just before the race, uh, the Porsche engineer 
Helmut Flegel said to me, Edmund, if you must have the accident, do not crash on the right side. <laughs> so I immediately, <laughs> a stone kilometer post in the right side and it exploded. I was extremely lucky to get out. I was on fire from head to foot and spent uh, several weeks uh, recovering from that. And then in 1970, after winning three Formula 5000 championships in 74, 5 and 6, with uh, Mario finishing second for two years, they changed the rules. They made us put bodywork on the open-wheel single-seater. I go to Sandrevi, Canada, for the first race of the new season in uh, early June of 1977. I haven't seen the car before, but I know, prepared by Chaparral and Jim Hall and Franz Rice, uh, it'll be good. I go out, it's good. I come in, Jim Hall said, how is it? I said, good. What do you want? You know, meaning you want to change the balance of the car. And it was just oversteering a bit too much, so I said, take quarter of an inch off the front wing, lower it, a quarter of an inch. And on the next lap, at 170 miles an hour, it took off, went straight up in the air. <laughs> oh. down. Uh, the roll bar broke, I went down on the road, rolled the helmet away, it broke the neck, C1, broke my shoulders, split my breastbone, broke my ribs. My heart stopped, but fortunately, as it rolled off the track, it landed on its wheels, and the, the track doctor was a heart specialist, so he got my heart going. And then the ambulance put tire on the way to hospital. And mm. when Marion arrived from England the next day, the headline in the Montreal paper showed the ambulance with the two guys working on the wheel and me in the back not looking too good. It said a red man anymore, red man is dead. So, so that I've, was the headline? That was the headline. <laughs> so oh. been, yes. So I've been pretty lucky, really. Haven't I? <laughs> That's a bad day. Yeah, <laughs> when the ambulance crashes on the way to the hospital, that really sucks. That's a bad day in the office. Uh, there is more. There is so much more. I unreservedly recommend Brian's book. Yep. Um, especially for the candor. Brian is very upfront about his attitude toward racing and the and the odds of of surviving or not. And it's all it's just fascinating stuff if you if you uh if you like racing and racing drivers. Thank you. Thank you. And, and John, if I may, I, I think what's interesting both about the book and about Murray's career and why Murray was so special to a lot of racing drivers was he had a passion not just for the sport, but for the for the men and women involved. And so that's why that center thing hit him so hard, as was Damon Hill's victory, uh, having probably seen his father win the, his world championship. So Murray, Murray had a special relationship with a lot of racing drivers that, that not many commentators have had the privilege to, to, to have. And while he didn't drive himself, he really genuinely loved the guys that he commentated on. And they loved him for the same reason. Jensen Button, Ayrton Senna, they were friends um, with Murray Walker. And it, it meant a lot to him. And if they didn't succeed or they were hurt in any way, it hurt him. And you could hear it in his commentary. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's another connection there that um, is so special because, as Brian will attest, uh, his era and Murray's era were, without doubt, the, the worst. Uh, a crash like Grosjean's that we saw recently pretty much happened every week. Yes, yes. I think Murray did actually race motorcycles, didn't yes, he? Yes, he did. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Brian, Brian, I want to ask you, uh, Jonathan was telling me a story about you Speaking of crashes and, and uh, the dangerous time that it was, that era, that you turned down a Ferrari drive because of the attitude they had towards drivers? Uh, yes, in some ways, yes. I mean, I, I got a call from engineer Mauro Fagheri in 1968 at to come to Maranello and test Formula 2A, Formula 2 at Modena. So I go... Now, it started off pretty well when I walked into the dark store of a hotel without seeing it. So that was the first evening. <laughs> so anyway, at lunchtime, after whistling around Modena a few times, um, it was lunchtime. So we're having a sandwich and uh, Gary says, Brian, over there, under the trees, in the raincoat, this is Signor Ferrari. So what he's really saying, of course, is go faster. <laughs> so... <laughs> We go to the Nürburgring, South Circuit, the Subschweif, as it's called, which is very similar to the main circuit in the uphill and downdale hedges, of course, in those days. No barriers, no curbs, nothing. And uh, 
I was going okay, and about probably 10 minutes from the end of qualifying on the Saturday afternoon, I came in the pits, and uh, Mauro Figueri says, Brian, Brian, why are you stopping? I said, well, I've gone as fast as I can. He said, Brian, you are in 10th place. Go out and try harder. <laughs> out I go, drive like a maniac for 10 minutes. I go one-tenth of a second faster than I'd already done, and I was in fourth place. I'd never been in 10th place. And so... Uh, the race started, and there was uh, I was behind Kurt Ahrens. Jackie X was the team leader in the Ferrari. Piers Courage was second. Kurt Ahrens was third. I was fourth. We're all together. We just came past the pits early on, third or fourth. And bang! I think you no, know, my World War II goggles shattered, and uh, I thought I'd been hit in the eye with a stone. Um, Kurt Ahrens had put a wheel on the on the dirt, and so I did it slow laps. I go about four miles, you know, with no goggles. To reduce speed, I come in the pits and forget it. Where your spare goggle? Where your spare goggle? I said, I don't have any. He said, Take Xs. said, They were dark green and they were okay in the sun, but not quite as good under the trees. So I drive you know, like a maniac, one not a thought in my head, you know. And I'm gaining two seconds a lap on the leaders, and I can't, I finish fourth. And I'd set the parts to slap, et cetera, et cetera. But when I got back into the sport hotel, the old hotel built in the 1930s, I sat on the bed, you know, like this, my head in my hands going through it all. And then we go to dinner and uh, for, uh, goes away, comes back. He says, I speak with Signor Ferrari for the rest of the year. You drive a Formula Dewey, Formula Two. And in September, a Formula Uno, Formula One. I said, no, thank you. <laughs> no many men can say that. <laughs> what do you mean, no, thank you? I said, if I drive for Ferrari, I'll be dead by the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think a lot of people in that era wouldn't have had the, the guts to say that, wouldn't have said no to. Who says no to Enzo Ferrari? That's that's yeah, am I amazing. <laughs> well, I think it's possible. I didn't really have enough ambition. I didn't have that great ambition, you know, to be a Formula One world champion like so many. I think probably all Formula One world champions have that tremendous ambition. As I raced against Jody Schechter in 1973 when he was on his way up. And Mike then, you, that's what he's going to be. So I'm going to be world champion, you know. I never, I never had any thoughts like that. Mm. There we are. Well, Jonathan, I, you had you did some great imitations of Murray Walker, some other Murrayisms. You got to give give us a couple more, please. Oh, okay. Hang on, I, I, I've got a, I got a, I got a, a list of them. But um, <laughs> excuse me while I interrupt myself. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the lead car is unique, except for the one behind, which is identical. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Either the car is stationary or it's on the move. <laughs> oh, those are great! Jonathan. That's the one about uh, the car is in fine shape, except it's oh, on fire. Except it's on fire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, great, the great thing is that he, you know, he wasn't doing it on purpose. No, no, exactly. <laughs> uh, oh. <clears throat> All right, guys. Well, we got to get into the commercial break in. Let's do that now. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion and our tribute to Murray Walker. Listen to Speed City. Back after a quick break. As a rider, you know what you like. The power, the feel, the ride. When it comes to gear, you know what keeps you safe. Ducati Austin provides riders with the finest in day and easy leathers, the best the market offers. Visit Ducati Austin on Breaker Lane just east of I-35 and throw your leg over the most iconic sports bike ever built. Ducati. Even take it for a test ride or see what's been described as art on wheels from MV Augusta. You know what you like. See it at Ducati Austin, online at DucatiAustin.com. 
Motivation USA, catering to the sport bike enthusiast looking for truly unique parts and accessories. Stand out from the crowd. Motivation is the exclusive North American distributor for SC Project MotoGP inspired exhausts and the largest Rizoma retailer in the United States. Get the best parts from around the world at the best prices with fast shipping and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Shop online 24-7 at MotivationUSA.com. That's MotivationUSA.com. Talk 13-7, the right choice. Welcome back to the fastest hour in radio, Speed City. There's that lump in the throat that you were talking about, Jonathan. You know, what I, and Bob will back me up here, you know, at the end of a race, especially when it's a championship, you have one chance and it's a two second chance to get it right. Now you can either write something or you can go off the moment and, and, and obviously it's better to go off the moment, uh, but you hope you get it right and don't muddle your words. And, and that was just a, a glorious moment for Britain. It was three in the morning um, when uh, Damon won the world championship and it was just the perfect, everybody felt it and everybody knew that that was the appropriate because it knew what it meant for Murray and it meant to the nation to see the son of a world champion win a world championship because Damon had not dedicated his whole life to it, but he, you know, it was so important to him. And that's the only reason he went into motor racing was to, if you like, try to emulate uh, what his father had achieved. Mm. Uh, we just got a nice tweet sent to us by Andy P. He says, he actually learned of Murray Walker through an F1 video game. He's obviously younger on the original PlayStation. He said he lent his voice, and I yes, never right. heard, and never heard had, he had never heard him before, even though that imperfect vehicle, you could hear his passion and love for the sport. RIP to a legend. Thanks, Andy P. We appreciate you, yep. you chiming in. Well, I, I want to ask both you guys, uh, we have Bob Varsha and Brian Redmond with us. I want to ask you a little bit about current F1. Um, Bob, I want to start with you. Um, I know you said you didn't get to see all the testing or anything, but it is interesting to see that it, it, it Mercedes is not dominating testing, and it doesn't. They don't really look comfortable yet. I mean, do you think there's actually a shot at Mercedes not winning this year? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, hard to say. This is going to be such an interesting year, in that the teams are basically using last year's cars with permissible upgrades. <clears throat> the engines will be much different, certainly Ferrari hopes so, um, but all signs will be pointing toward next season when a whole radically different rules package will come into effect. So every team now has to decide how do we divide our resources? How much development do we do on the car we've got now as opposed to getting down to brass tacks with next year's car? Um, having said that, yes, Mercedes does appear to have problems. In fact, somebody on the internet today pointed out Mercedes did no, um, you know, what they call their filming day testing before going to Bahrain. So everybody's going to be looking closely at the car to see if it changes when they do their filming day, because uh, they obviously have some issues in terms of reliability with the gearbox failing, Valtteri Bottas uh, on, on day one. Um, yeah, I think there's a very realistic chance that uh, Mercedes... Uh, could be challenged at least in the early part of the season. Well, this is where I, I don't have to channel my inner Murray Walker because I am about to bounce off the ceiling. Looking forward to the ceiling this season. I am so excited because there are so many different stories. I mean, last year was we didn't even know if we we're going to get a season, and it turned out to be incredibly fun and entertaining. But this year, there's so many cool stories, and and I'm going to ask you one more question, Bob, and then go to you, Brian. But Bob, of all the different things that are happening this year, what are you most looking forward to? Well, certainly we'll be watching Ferrari to see if they can bounce back. I mean, they, they had a very unrepresentative season last year. Um, and they need to they need to make changes. You know, they need to do something drastic, keeping in mind that they've still got this 2022 car that has to be envisioned in and created. I'll be interested to see how the uh, how their driver lineup of Carlos Sainz Jr. and uh, Charles Leclerc go. Uh, I'm really happy 
to see that the old boys, I mean, Kimi Raikkonen did something like 166 laps. Yeah. Today. I mean, that's for a guy his age and Fernando Alonso comes back. He did like 120 or 30 laps. I mean, these guys seem fit and ready to go. So it's going to be interesting to see if it's going to be all the new boys or if we're going to see, uh, you know, a fight back from the, uh, the Alonzos of the world. Daniel Ricardo could be an interesting addition at McLaren. Uh, and I'm not trying to ignore any of the kids. You know. um, and then, of course, there's Haas, who have such a, a PR hole to dig themselves out of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Decisions on driver lineup, you know. And then there's Williams, you know, Williams, who have been so bad for so long now, a team with all of their achievements. Uh, now they've got fresh faces, fresh thinking and fresh money. And, uh, you know, maybe Williams could do something this year. So you're right, John. It's going to be uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch all this play out. Well, Bob, I want to go back to Hasef one because we dedicated a good bit of the show last week about the <laughs> the, the new livery that essentially looks like a Russian flag. And we were we were we were talking about selling hats and everything here in the United States. You know, I know Gene has talked about his focus is the rest of the world. But my goodness, as an American team, uh, a Russian connection so deep like this. What what do you think? Am, are we off base and thinking that's going to be a, a big problem? Or hey, we we all know who talks loudest. Uh, you know, <laughs> the George, the 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 Washingtons and Lincolns and Grants and yep. all that sort of thing of the world. Um, I don't, in principle, have a problem with an American team aligning itself with Russian sponsorship. Uh, you know, I think putting the red, white, and blue of the Russian flag on the car and and you know, attracting the attention of the World Anti-Doping Agency and all these other things. Um, it's going to make for another great season of uh, Drive to Survive. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to be really happy. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's different. Again, it's one of those stories. We'll see what happens, what kind of reaction we get around the world. That and the, you know, the schedule is going to be another cut and paste. Uh, what will the pandemic do to all the best laid plans? Yeah, yeah. the list goes on and on. I got a question for Brian. Brian, um, I, I just want to get your take um, on effectively uh, Force India of old now basically being rebranded as Aston Martin. And of course, it started off as the Jordan team um, way back when, but has been through some permutations. But they've really made the effort to go British racing green with the British flag on. And for those that don't know, Brian um, drove uh, at Le Mans many, many times, but more importantly, brought Aston Martin back to Le Mans. And I was there that, that weekend. It was great. I think you finished 12th. Um, but it was, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it was great. Um, but it, but, but you can relate to what the, what Aston Martin means to the British racing fans. And I remember that Le Mans, it didn't matter where you finished. The British fans were just so delighted to see that, uh, name back in racing. And so what are your thoughts on what is a very bold move by, uh, Lawrence Stroll to do that? Well, it is, of course, the history of Aston Martin from the beginning and through until today has been extremely checkered. You know, the company going out of business, coming back into business, bought by Peter Levano, sold by Peter Levano to Ford, da, 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 da. and so everybody, of course, in Britain loves the Aston Martin name. And so we'd like to wish them luck, and of course, Lord Stroll is, you know, able to put into the team whatever it needs. And all of these top Formula One teams spend money like the American government, don't they? they you know, it doesn't really matter. And it makes you wonder whether they're able to print it as well. Perhaps they are. <laughs> so that, right. just reminding me of that Aston Martin run at uh, Le Mans in 1989, my last professional year, actually. And uh, the car, you know, it was slow down the straight. We could follow the Mercs and the Jags. If one of them passed us going into the Porsche Curves, we would be with it going on to the Marsan Strait, all through the Portra Curve, out of that, through the Dunlop Curves, etc. But the minute we got on the Mulch Sandy, it disappeared. We were doing 215 miles an hour, <laughs> and the Mercs and Jacks were doing 240. <laughs> oh. So, anyway, there's an hour to go when Peter Levance, the team owner, and of course, Victor Gordon, Peter was really doing it all the time. And would you like to do the last hour? 
you know, kind of a, an honour in some ways, but I, I, you know, we're not going to get any higher or any lower except through breakdown. So I'm whistling round, I'm pretty bored, really. There's a corner called Arnage to the right in the second gear at about 90 miles an hour. And the Aston, the AMR1, that was done by Richard Williams, uh, would slide very easily in the, that type of corner. So for a few laps, I slid, you know, like this. And then I didn't slide. And suddenly from the right-hand side of the road is about 20 British enthusiasts. And I get a huge pine-written sign. Give us some oppo. <laughs> <laughs> so the next lap, next Hang on, hang on, lads. I got another big sign saying, uh, now, fastest lap. (laughs) (laughs) So the third and final time, crumpets and tea with the queen. (laughs) (laughs) I love love the fact that you can read these signs while racing Le Mans. (laughs) Yeah, so there was uh, a lot of respect for Aston Martin and wish them, of course, you know, the very best of luck. Go ahead, lads. Uh, Brian, I mean, I feel like you're one of the guys that's always a pitch hitter and you get in, you get called in to to drive something. You've driven so many different things for so many different teams and folks. If I recall correctly, you, you, uh, regardless of what I have here, I'm a big Carroll Shelby fan. I think you crossed paths with that Texan. Yeah, I mean, the first time I saw Carroll Shelby was 1967 at Le Mans. And I go walking down the pit lane. I'm driving for a small British uh, team, Lord Down, who are a great enthusiast, in a GT40 with Mike Salmon. And I'm walking down the pit, and I see this massive transport, a mobile workshop, packed up to the pit. And Carol Shelby's there with his big steps, and he's shouting at the top of his voice, Where's the carburetor guy? Where's the carburetor guy? <laughs> And from the top of the pits in those days, you could have spectators, you know, above the pits. This voice right. comes, eyes up here, Carol. So Carol <laughs> let out a few epitaphs and said, get your ass down here. Boy. I can't, he said, I've lost my part. <laughs> so that was the first time I saw Carol. I got to know him later on, of course, you know, on the historic racing side very well. A great character. <laughs> Those stories. Oh yeah, I we could we could uh, make this show last about five hours. As far as I'm concerned, I would love to hear all that. We we are just about out of time. I want to thank both of you, gentlemen, Bob Varsha and Brian Redman. Uh, this is a you know all about uh, Murray Walker and the the legend that he was. But but Bob, I know, I hope I want you to know that I, I know a lot of Americans feel the same way about you in your Formula One commentating career. So I couldn't think of a better person to have on the show to help to wish Murray Walker the next life for him. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. And Brian, same to you. What a wonderful joy you've been to talk about all the racing. And uh, I think it was just a fantastic addition to the show. And thank you so much. And Jonathan, we'll for a new shirt next time. <laughs> sure. we'll, we'll get you a solid color shirt next time. How about yeah, we'll that? Send you a spe- I'll tell you what, I will, for your birthday of what, three days ago, I will send you a Speed City shirt and you can wear it with, with it when you're not wearing your BRDC shirt. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, everybody. And don't forget, we're going to do all of our Formula One pre and post race shows this year again uh, for our fourth year. So tune into that and go to speedcitybroadcast.com to find out all about that. Thank you, everyone, and we'll talk to you next Sunday night. Bye, John. Very much. Bye, y'all. Bye, Doug. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road, any road, the steeper the better 
because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.